Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, thank you for listening. Uh, today we have, we're, we're going to be learning. It's going to be a journey. It's going to be a wonderful learning process. Um, and this fellow came into uh, my life through another friend, Mark. And he said, there's an author. Uh, he's written a, a pivotal book and you should really talk to him. So here we are. And I want to welcome to the big show uh, a, a friend of mine, because, you know, it is Rick and Friends, and it's Mr. Watson. Hello. Welcome to the big show. Hey, Rick. How are you? Very well. Thanks. Great, great to be joining you. So, uh, so Mike, you've, you've got a book. It's called Rise Up, Leadership Habits for Turbulent Times. I can't think of a, a more appropriate title for right now. And... Uh, I have dove into the book. I have to admit, it's it's roughly about a hundred pages, correct? Yeah, just over. And and now we so I've gotten to about page forty. Um, unfortunately, I'm I, I'm going to finish the book after this, and then we you know you can quiz <laughs> me and all that kind of good stuff. But I'm I'm very curious about uh, the timing of the book and what led you to the book. So let's maybe start there. Yeah, yeah. So this book was written pre-COVID. Let's start with that. Okay. Um, I wouldn't wish COVID on our worst enemy or on our society, but the timing was pretty good for the launch of our book. Um, yeah. Rick, the, when we first created the book, we were looking at other factors. We were looking at the environmental factors, climate change that are having massive impacts on our society. We were looking at technological change. We were looking at demographic change. And we were seeing in the organizations that we work with, they were really struggling to bring strategy to life. And typically where the gap existed was in leadership. So our practice is strategy and leadership development. And it was the leadership side that we saw was the biggest gap in these current market conditions or world conditions. So we started writing. And of course, as we were coming to the end of the book, came COVID, which just put a huge exclamation mark on all of it. Well, I was reading in the book about what it did for your organization, Ignite, what was what COVID did for your organization, which was, you know, it, it really tested a lot of these strategies. Yeah, and I, I think your audience is, uh, to a great extent, business owners and people that work in the midsize enterprise space, eh? and look, we've, we've all struggled. I was chatting with an old buddy of mine who's uh, runs a, 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 a pharmacy store and, you know, how have you been doing? Oh man, the things that we've had to try and do and, um, and do differently. And so the storyline for us, Rick, is um, we, our job is, is creation of, of strategy and it, it's a very creative exercise that requires that human interaction. And Zoom wasn't doing the job the way it needed to. And I know there are ways, but we knew we needed to get back to the office in, in some way, shape or form. I was also really concerned about the mental health of our people because of the isolation effect of COVID. Mm -hmm. And you know, with the best of intention uh, shared with the staff, but I think it's time we get back. And honestly, it was with the best of intention. And the blowback was unreal. The really? blowback was unbelievable. Um, it, and, and I learned a big lesson through that. And, and when I look back on, on what went wrong, 
It's that I didn't stop in the leadership book. In our book, it says, demonstrate that you care, demonstrate that you're listening. I do care and I was listening, but I didn't demonstrate it. So it's, you know, and, and oh man, the blowback and I felt like a heel and and we did circle around and, and we got it all back on track and we're now hybrid. But for us, COVID was really tough. Um, we had moved into new premises uh, on March the 9th of 2020 was our occupancy date. The new premises were five times the size of the space that we uh, that we left. We'd hired some more staff. We'd increased our complement by 20%. So think of a massive hit to our overheads. And it was done with a really good risk assessment, what could go wrong. And we had business lockdown, not contractually, but verbally, that was going to see us grow 30 40% that year. So it was done with real confidence. On uh, March 13th, it was uh, called out as a global pandemic and we sent everyone home. And in this beautiful palatial place looking out towards the North Shore Mountains in downtown Vancouver, I was the only one that was showing up, uh, the only one that could come to the office. And the only reason I did is because my wife and daughter were working from home and it was just too much heat in the kitchen. So I came down here, I, I hauled down an old armchair, put it right in the middle of the office. And in those uh, months, what we saw happen was uh, a lot of the commitments, people were battening down the hatches and the commitments that were in place uh, disappeared. And I don't hold it against the people, they were in survival mode. And then it got a little deeper um, and it cut into our core business and our core business was down 40%. So we've now increased our overheads by 25, 30%. We've dropped our top line by 40% and we were bleeding like you wouldn't believe as many businesses were. And uh, so now what? Do we lay people off and you know, where, where do we go with that? I mean, we were in a pretty fortunate position. We had a good balance sheet. And uh, I remember one night I stayed up half the night um, talking to my wife and saying, look, is, it, is this it? Like it was all of these years of building to give it all away in, in, in this terrible circumstance. And in the end, we sort of let, um, let I don't know, goodwill and faith prevail. And, and we said, look, we're, we're in a pretty good position from a balance sheet standpoint. If Ignite goes under, the whole world's gone down. So we just had to have faith. And it sounded like you were going to, you floated some employees during that time too. Yeah, well, we kept we kept every employee. So I came to work the next morning and uh, did an announcement that there will be no layoffs and no salary rollbacks. And we started talking about what we wanted to be when we emerged from COVID. So I said, if you know, we'll if we have to start cutting back, if if, if our liquidity's gone and we got to start cutting back, I can start with my salary, and then we'll start by going across the board. And we laid out what we would do in the event of, but we really focused our efforts on what do we want to be when COVID is over, and uh, that's the strategy side. What do we want to be when it's over? What is our floor, and what do we have to monitor, and when will we make changes if it gets worse than that? Well, I, yeah. I, and I think that's part of the reason why I liked the uh, the book Rise Up was because you you really do try and break it down into examples. You talked about that that one family that had a, a national like you, they were engaging you on both sides, and they had two two managers, I guess, that were from the same family, and one was regional and one was national or something like that. And you talked about how one really pivoted and and really followed some of the tenets of of the book. 
and the other one, you know, was slower to come to the party, one could say. And it, it seems to me, and, and again, I'm, I'm not generalizing, we'll dive more into some of the strategies, but it seems like ego, like if you have a, and I'm going to, I'm going to call it what it is. If you have an ego and you're a leader and you're, you're an alpha and you're, you know, you're a hard charging, you, you were successful. It's probably very tough to, to back it up. And you mentioned this in the book that getting that buy-in factor is so key, but it's really, it's almost counterintuitive for that kind of leader, it seems. Well, um, you just nailed it, Rick. You just nailed it. And healthy ego is a good thing. That's that confidence. That's that belief in self. But ego can become very negative as well. And, and there's lots of literature around that, the bad ego, and that's driven by insecurity. And, you know, you can, you can get into gender a little bit with this discussion. I generally shy away from the gender conversations, but in this particular one, we, we really have seen uh, empirical evidence to, to say that it, it, it holds. And this is male leaders, mm -hmm. especially sort of in their 30s and 40s. We've been trained to be right, that leadership is be right, be smart, work hard, don't show emotion, uh, unless it's anger. We're allowed to do that. Um but tell people what to do. And that's what leadership is. And that leadership is allocating assets and being really smart and tricky um, and sitting in a corner and getting this stuff done. And it's what we, what has to break is this entire mindset away from, and I'd call that leadership as a chess game, you know, the chess masters sitting there playing chess against one another and change that mindset from leadership is about being right, which is egocentric, to leadership is about enabling people individually and collectively to be the best versions of themselves in pursuit of something noble. So that the ego piece, if you deeply ex accept that it's not serving you well, and you pivot your thinking or your mindset towards, hang on, maybe I'm thinking about leadership the wrong way. And I want to start thinking about it this new way, which is about enabling people to be their best in pursuit of uh, something noble. Now that the, the ego starts to get in check because it's been getting in our way, and that's how we come to terms with it getting in our way. Unfortunately, we sometimes have to fail to see that. It, it is true, and and I do think that it's it's so it's such an irony that that the things that almost get you to the top are are hindrances when you get there or you're considered for that leadership position and i always i look back on the managers and leaders i've been lucky enough to work with and some of them had a very good idea of themselves they were they were it was not a competition they were there to foster development with the group um, there was never any kind of mind games of I'm smarter than you or any, like they were there to truly support assist and, and they were great team players and they truly were there to support. And I was, I was so grateful over my career to have those different people because it really gives you an idea of what leadership does, does look like. And that's what I found interesting about your book was, um, what, what's great is you open with a failure of your own. Mike, and that was kind of an interesting perspective, which is you led with humility, which I find very refreshing. 
Um, and you, you really tell it like it was, you built this great plan, but you did not get buy-in. And that was part of the reason why you felt it, it failed so miserably. And, and that to me was a very refreshing way to open a book. Yeah, that experience was a tough one. I, I still wince when I think about it. And um, it was worse than I didn't get by. I came in with ego and attitude and I was super smart and I was going to tell people what they needed to do. And I just walked around with my chest puffed out as a this 37-year-old vice president and um People would kind of scurry for cover when I came and I didn't know it. I didn't I didn't know that that's what I was doing. And I really didn't know the impact I was having on the people around me. And I, honestly, I, I am a good person. and I'm a caring person. But I had been trained that that's what leadership is. And I believed I was doing what was best for the people in the organization. And it was only the failure that came through the business results that allowed me to wake up and, and see how misguided I was. And I'll forever be in debt to the person that uh, had the courage to look me in the eye when I asked the question, why don't they get it? And she says, because they can't stand you. And here's why. Oh, and, man. And now, do you think, though, that your military training was was military training before that? It was, wasn't it? No, it, was ban- it was banking before that. And it's an interesting one. I love that you went there because it's a bit of a, a misconception around the, the military, they when they get on a mission, they're super clear. Mission clarity is is abundantly clear. But this whole com- and and then you 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 shift into command and control mode, but it's for a very short period of time. What's interesting is what happens before the mission in the military, and the amount of uh input they receive from multiple stakeholders to ensure that they're they're considering all the different perspectives before they lock down the mission so when they actually go into the mission everyone knows they've had an, uh, the ability to weigh in on where they're going and and how they're go- going to get there what they're doing why they're doing it and how they're going to do it and so they're actually going in with a tremendous sense of clarity so it's it's a it's a societal thing where we've caught this um command and control, military leadership. Uh, What I've seen since is I've worked with some great military people. In fact, uh, the co-author of our book is a sub-lieutenant in the Royal Canadian Navy, uh, top of her class logistics officer. And uh, she's the one that that said, like, this is the stuff that matters. This is what I learned in the military. No, I learned all mine in banking, Rick. (laughs) And so I escaped with my hide, but thank heavens I did. No, because I uh, I was lucky enough uh, way back. This is going way back, but I was I had to provide security for the 1992 World Champion Blue Jays in Medicine Hat because uh, there was an ownership linkage there. So on their day mm-hmm. off, the World Champion Blue Jays with Joe Carter and uh, those kind of guys were coming in to play the Baby Jays, and and I had to uh, provide security for these people, and I had 80 volunteers. And luckily I had this, he was a captain or lieutenant came in from Suffield and said, here's how you, here's how you deal with 80 people. You don't have 80 people reporting to you. You have squadrons and then that person, you know, and and he kind of broke down military strategy for me. And, and it was a, it was a wonderful learning experience and I'm grateful again, but that's why I find 
when when I'm reading through your book, though, what's what's interesting to me is this. Um, I think it's that humility piece, and and that part is again, it's counterintuitive for a leader. I mean, again, you you want to have faith in the leader. You want to have make sure that they they have the ball. Like we have confidence that they know where we're going and. But the humility thing is is uh, an interesting piece for this book. I've I've read lots of leadership books, but the humility one kind of struck me as uh, as an interesting perspective for sure. You know, it's interesting. I, I shared before we published. I shared the book with a lot of people, um, including my brothers. Uh, one of them is a lives in, and is a school principal in Kelowna, and he said, "Mike, I love the book." He said, "We need this in education." He says, "But why were you so hard on yourself?" Like, you know, because you actually weren't nearly as bad a leader as you portrayed in this book. And my response was, oh, Marco, no, I was. (laughs) Let's call it out for what it is. I was that bad. I happened to be good enough as a banker to to be able to get, you know, the sins were forgiven because I was really good on the other side. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also said, look, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. I got nothing to prove. I've had a good run. I've had a great career and it didn't come easy. And I made a ton of mistakes. And the biggest thing that I see out there in leaders is they don't give themselves permission to make mistakes. And that it it comes across as, as ego or inauthentic. And when you can be a little more open about your struggles, don't overdo it. Like it's, don't, don't be out there looking for sympathy. But to recognize, oh, man, I sure blew that one. It's a permission statement for others. And it it was a critical element of the book to really look hard at at the foibles of my career and be open and transparent about that and not worried about it. You know, I've had a great career. I'm real proud of the leader I've become. And I didn't get there uh, on an easy, smooth carpet ride, you know, and, and there's an expression we introduce at the end of the book, wisdom doesn't grow on our good days. And we live by that. You, you have bad days and we make mistakes and wisdom grows on those days. I, I have a question then. So if, and, and it's a great point. And I do think that there's, um, I, I think I have a, a client who runs um, a store and he admits his, his mistakes in front of his group and he does so very honestly and very transparently and and I think the group rallies behind that they they they're more often going to be accountable and admit their mistakes when when they are saying like they will own something because they've seen the owner do it and I think that's one of the lessons I've seen is Tell me about that. The sword. Rick talk about that guy like, let's dig a little, what a great case study. So what is it that enables him to be vulnerable without feeling diminished? Like that, that that's, um, you know, he's not cowering and, and lowering his shoulders and hunched over and, oh, I, I'm no good. It's I made a mistake. What is it that you see inside that guy that enables that? It's that sense of self. It's that ability to to stand in front and, and be self-aware and go, I am not perfect. Hopefully my batting average is over 50%, but I am going to own this because no matter what he, and he often tells his staff that, which is if you make a mistake, own it, and then let's just move on. 
But if you don't own it and you try and cover it up or you try and blame shift, then I have a real problem. And that's when you and I are going to come to terms with some things. Yeah. And, and that's not, and that, and that's not going to be okay. And, and, and that's the come to yeah. Jesus meeting. Yeah. So I think for him, it was more or less, I'm going, I, I need to show them what that looks like. And, and virtually every meeting I've ever seen him chair, he will say, you know, we're working on this. I failed over here. I'm going to do better. I'm not going to try and repeat that mistake, but I, this did happen. I ordered mm-hmm. this wrong or I received this wrong and, and I dealt with this wrong. But, you know, never never anything destructive or anything to do with any staff member. It's just something yeah, he yeah. does. Um, Can I go back to that? I get, what you've described in this person, it's the second time on this call you've referenced the sense of self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, so I try, I get to use these calls to learn and build my, 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 uh, my, my storyline. Eh? And that sense of self and I'm not perfect mm-hmm. is so powerful. And, it, and that's okay. Like the way you described it, Rick, I have a real strong sense of who I am. I'm not perfect. And I'm okay with that. That's the sense of self. If more leaders could embrace that in, in that uh, gentleman that you're referring to, my gosh, our workplaces would be vastly improved. They, they would be, and it takes a while to get there. And I think that's part of the experience and the journey and all that kind of good stuff is, is uh, getting a few wins under your belt. So like you said, when your brother came back and said, you know, you weren't that bad. But you had to build, I think, a, a resume that had those successes for you to actually feel like I'm going to openly admit those because overall, my body of work is actually pretty good. And I think mm-hmm. that's the one thing that you've kind of come to terms with is overall, I think I did okay. And that's why I think it's easier. But I think for the, and I'm going to, you know, stereotype, but 20 and 30 year olds who who don't have that body of work to look back on or that legacy probably going to have a tougher time because they don't have that that feeling that I've gotten more wins than losses so I can't admit my losses more readily. Yeah, gosh, you, I love that. And what's going on in my mind is you've just defined your job and mine. Okay? Mm-hmm. And and any leader that's out there is to help people understand that you are great. You are great. Mm-hmm. Your intrinsic ability is amazing. What you have just inside is absolutely remarkable. What you don't have is experiential skill. So let's not pretend that we do. Mm-hmm. Let's build it over time and let's be open and transparent about that. And every one of these experiences is building your resume for the future but what you've really called out is these young people that are coming into their careers that haven't had the scars, they haven't got the resume, they haven't had the successes, so they don't know. We're, we're blissfully ignorant. So what is our job as leaders? How do we help them be the best versions of themselves and maybe minimize the, the magnitude of the mistakes or the consequences of the mistakes, allow them to make the mistakes but help set them up to minimize the consequence of. It's a good point. I, and I think that's it is, is teaching as best you can and building the framework so that if you do have a mistake, we're going to make sure that, you know, again, we're going to work through it. We're going to review it. But for the most part, 
it's not devastating if if you do and we're going to give you the rain to make a mistake and i think that's the other environment as well who was the best boss you ever had if you look back the most effective i won't say the best because we start to get into who did i like Mm -hmm. who was the most influential on your career you don't have to give a name but describe that leader if you would uh he was gm of our of our media station in southern Alberta, and and what was amazing about him was uh, his his deft use of humor. Um, mm-hmm. He always seemed to be a very subtle, and never some some managers, some leaders, I think, are they use humor like a sword, like they just small mm-hmm. cuts here and there. Oh yeah, 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 and yeah, it's yeah. Sarcasm and that kind of thing. He was very good. It was always to build you up and and to share a laugh, um, and a sense of calm. No matter what we were facing, it always seemed like I have the wheel. You are all fine. We're all fine. Don't worry about it because I'm going to figure this out. And I think that was one of the things that that uh, I really respected was no matter what what kind of you know the yeah. s storm that we were we were up against, it seemed like he just it was the same person day after day after day, and 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 that was. For me, I've never appreciated anybody that panics first and then deals with it second. <laughs> that just seems to be the worst kind oh, of man. Yeah, and we've seen so many over the years that are reactive in nature. And when you've got a reactive boss, you really hesitate bringing the something to them because you don't know how they're going to react. And, and we spend a lot of time ta- in our coaching talking to leaders about respond, don't don't react and that's about deep breaths in and calm it's actually written up i don't even remember what chapter rick that we talk about the uh the the human psychology and the the cyclical swings of temperament and the broader those are the more dangerous it is for your leadership if you can narrow those bands of temperament um, it really helps people understand the version of you they're going to get, which builds trust. So it's in the chapter on trust, so critical. And so there, here's another vulnerability. I have uh, what was originally spoken as of as a creative temperament uh, from someone who wanted me to like them uh, to a counselor who told me the truth that says you have clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's well managed now. And, and uh, so I, it's, it's no longer a factor in my life because it, I'm fortunate enough to have the care and attention. And, and it's really, really well managed. But the, it was a huge factor in the gaffes of my leadership early. And it was this piece about the vacillating temperament. People didn't know which mic they were going to get. The one that's, let's do it. We've got this. Like sort of we're in the trenches. We're going to war. Or the mic that's not having a great day and they're all wondering what they did wrong. That sense of calm and, and here's the band that you operate in. Here's the top. Never never higher than this and, and never lower than that. I, I watched this amazing. It, it was 15 seconds long. It was Tom Hanks around with uh, six other famous, famous actors. And it was just the camera's just on Tom Hanks. And the message is in, in the voice only Tom Hanks could do, this too shall pass, he says. <laughs> You've had a great day. The world is, is, is cheering you on and, they're, and, and, the, and you feel like a god, this too shall pass. <laughs> you have another day and you're down in the dumps and it's all gone wrong. 
this too shall pass. Oh. Narrow the temperament band, hey? It's very interesting that you say that of of that they never knew which kind of mic they were going to get because, you know, you were dealing with your own demons yep. and not knowing that your forward facing was going to create this kind of discord with your staff because for the most part, they do think and they go ahead of it, which is, okay, he wasn't very nice to me. And I think this happens in workplaces all across North America and Europe is is they go up to the, the boss on that day, they get a an okay or a mediocre hello or hi there, Martha, or whatever it is. And then they, they internalize that the rest of the day going, what did I do? Because I'm not sure if I did, a, if I made a mistake. And, and they will actually spend most of their day yes, worrying yes. about this. And further to this point, I'm, as I go back into the history of when I've been a manager, maybe too early, but I, I would I would say humor, and, and again, I want to say this in the right way. My humor was not as well honed uh, as, as it should be for a manager because I found if the, if the joke went off a little bit off the rails, um, again, it, it, was, it was one person uh, started bawling in the bathroom, and I, I said, what's wrong with, with Lisa? And they said, oh, did you tell her this? And I said, yeah, tongue-in-cheek. And I find humor is one of those things that's very volatile for managers, and you have to be so careful with it. How you use humor um, is its a major topic, and humor that is intended to build people up is marvelous. Self-deprecating humor is generally the only one that works. Um, True. True. But if, if, you're, if the humor is at someone else's expense, which it often is, it's bad in the workplace. There are, there, we want to laugh. We want to smile. There are things that are funny. And we know that we, we got to learn the difference. We don't know the difference right away, but we've got to learn the difference because sarcasm is biting. And that point you made, the power we hold as leaders, if we make that comment to someone that's taken not as we intended it, and their productivity is gone for the day and their, their sense of self is diminished, so it comes back to what's our role as a leader, enabling people to be their best. Is that comment that I'm about to make going to make them their best or is it going to diminish? That becomes the filter. We also use, uh, Rick, a filter. This is in our office. There's three things that I absolutely insist on. When you come to work, you, you show up to give the best you can give that day. Whatever that is, I want to see the best you can give in the time that you work here. I don't expect 10, 12-hour days, but... Give it your best while you're here. If you work for our company, you must be on a journey to be the best version of yourself. We all have this gift of intrinsic ability. And if you're going to work here, you, you must be on that journey to be the best self. And it may or may not be with us down the road. But you, I want to see people on that journey because the psychology of it is that's fulfillment. So I want people that are on that path of fulfillment. The third, which links to the humor construct, is the cons is, is Ubuntu. Ubuntu. U-B-U-N-T-U. It's a Zulu or a, a word of Zulu origin, which literally translated as a person is a person through other people, which really means I can't be fulfilled if you're not. In simple terms, we talk about a parent can never be ha happier than their unhappiest child. 
And if we take that into the workplace, the construct of Ubuntu, I am here to bring my best, which must be helping you be your best, or I'm failing us. Right. And when in our workplaces, if we have this construct of Ubuntu, it changes everything. It, it, it's in sport. You see it in sports. You see it in, in, in business. It was Desmond Tutu that popularized it. But uh, Doc Rivers, the Boston Celtics, is the one. If you Google Doc Rivers, Boston Celtics, you'll see him speak of Ubuntu. And uh, I first saw, learned of Ubuntu when a good friend of mine uh, who lives in Kelowna, Jordan Tutu, lived it in his later hockey years, shared this construct with me of, of about holistic living. And he showed me the Doc Rivers video. And uh, I mean, it, it, it's powerful, powerful stuff. And you won't use dumb humor if you're living Ubuntu. I, I do want to touch a little bit on the book. I know we've got a pretty full agenda here. But uh, the one thing I wanted to mention is the on page six, the Harvard Business Review. I just want to take us there for a second. And it was this... This was about the 9%. That oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that story. <laughs> like that, that kind of blew me away. So, I, you know, for our listeners, we should build the context for this. But I'm reading through this, and it was, it was essentially, I, I can't remember, 4,600 businesses were surveyed, and only 9% made it or, or had any kind of gain through recessionary times. And, and that to me, I found incredibly insightful and and really uh it, it's a great uh perspective for the book which is it, it is really difficult to to bring your business up through an economic recession or downturn or any kind of which makes sense but uh, i nine percent doesn't seem like a lot i guess yeah uh, it's it was a study done in 2000 uh, authored by the gentleman who's now the dean of uh, Harvard Business School, Dean Noria. And uh, there were two others involved in this study. You're right. It was 4,700 companies surveyed uh, longitudinally over a period of time. And they mapped them through these companies through three recessions. So the turbulence they were studying in their report was purely economic. You know, so it was recession, but it impacted these industries differently. So then they did the cross-sectional analysis and they said, so what were the what were the stats? And the stats are remarkable. Three years later, later 80% had not regained pre-recession growth and profitability. So 80 of them percent of them never got back to where they were before. 40% hadn't returned to absolute pre-recession profitability, never mind growth. 40% never even got to the profit they were before. And only 9% came out of the recession doing better than they were doing before the recession. So then the study goes on to explain what they did differently. And the, the way that the, the, this uh, case is written, they talk about the strategic things they did. But we went deeper on it and, and started to ponder what were the leadership things that must have taken place in order to enable it. And I'm so pleased you touched on that because, uh, Rick, when we were writing the book, uh, we we're talking about leadership and we linked the construct of resilience in turbulent times. My colleague and co-author, Ali Groveview, she said, Mike, I'm not sold. Like, how does this truly create resilience? What's the business case for this? 
Um, and Allie is like, she's brilliant, just academically gifted. And, and she's such a great leader. And she wasn't going to put her name on something that didn't ring true. And it was this study that re- we had anecdotal evidence, but it was this empirical st- basis to the storyline that says when crisis hits or turbulence hits or neg- negative circumstances hit, you have to mobilize your people differently than you did before. And they have to have the courage to stop doing some things and to do more of other things. If you're going to do that, you need incredible transparency and you need incredible courage. And you don't get that without great leadership. We've got the economic times of today. We were working uh, with a very, very large home construction company in eastern Canada. So they build thousands of homes a year and the economic conditions are very negative to that sector right now. The interest, higher interest rates, they're talking about 50% or more reduction in market for new homes. Mm -hmm. They're going to get hit really, really hard. And I was so inspired by these leaders who emerged from that saying, we have to be clear on where we invest and we have to be clear on where we curtail. But more important from that session is they walked back from the strategy and they said, but let's step back and let's examine how we lead. They chose to look at how they lead first before they got into what will we and where will we invest and where will we curtail. And I guarantee they will be part of the 9%. It is so worthwhile. I believe that too. And I I think part of it is the when I look at across the board of all the great business owners that I've ever met and a lot of them, whenever they see a recession, they see opportunity in that recession. They see the um, value of a property or value of a commercial building or buying equipment that's been uh, depreciated based on people selling it off. Like I know about a flooring client who always, always, always buys up, any anybody that sells off flooring at 10 cents on the dollar and he holds on to it because it's it's got a lasting shelf life like there's these people that doubled down in covid who actually got to experience the growth of covid because they saw an opportunity if you it's like that alberta farmer when i asked him how he did so well with cattle and he says the the best way to make money with cattle is buy it right and what he meant was Whenever I see a good deal on a, on a cow, I know that cow is always, always, always going to be a great investment, but how I buy it is how I make money on it. And with a lot of my clients, they will see a recession coming and they will actually pick it apart and go, where can I, I see the, the horizon? And I'm going to go after that. And, and again, a lot of them have just courage beyond a doubt, and I, I always applaud them because the risk is, is high, but they just seem to know it. And they're, they're always curious about where it can go, and they see it as a pattern. And, and the Harvard Business Review, going through three recessionary times, you'd start to realize that there's a cycle to this thing called the economy. <laughs> like, there might just be a cycle, you know? <laughs> you think, eh? It may just happen that way. <laughs> but people think when they're yeah, in one, but, you know, they, they think when they're in one, well, this is, I mean, this is completely like, this is the, 
this is it, this is... But when you start to go back in history, and if you study history at all, you realize that there's actually markers in time where there's just complete massive cycles if you go far enough back that's the key oh history history repeats itself and and the cycles do the the, the, the we live in a cyclical uh environment and it does come and i want to circle back to a couple of the things that that uh you talked about and i'm going to touch it back rick to leadership these folks have this this sort of extra sense of um of, of opportunity and, and they do. And, and the industrial psychologists will tell you that the great entrepreneurs, they're always a bit idiosyncratic. You know, they got it. They're always just a little different from the rest of us because they 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 do do the counter cyclical and they don't even think about it. They just do it. So they're wired different and God bless them. And we need them because they help grow our economy. But what you've described is a couple of leadership traits that really emerged as, as you were talking about uh, these people that choose to do it that way. And you use the word curious. They're curious. Hey, there's a different way that we might do this. And that links so tightly to the, the study of human psychology. If when you get news you didn't, you really don't want to get, and it's devastating, oh man, the world is over. And the counselors will say the simple repositioning of that to, hmm, that's not what I expected. It changes your entire mindset and it enables you to be curious. So what caused it? Where do I sit? What's going to happen next? And then respond versus react. And so that curiosity, and, and I, I can't remember which chapter, there's a whole chapter on the importance of curiosity. There was another ad, you should have written the book. I hope you finish reading it because you got it down, eh, Rick? The other one you talked about was uh, we refer to it as optimism. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a lot of this, it, we, we started exploring and researching it, uh, sort of picking up on Jim Collins' uh, book, Good to Great, where he talked about the Stockdale paradox, which is now it was quoted and, and, and spoken about so much during COVID times. You're in very, very difficult circumstances and they're going to get worse. And you accept that. I can't control it. They're going to get worse, but I will control what I can with a profound belief that it will get better. Mm-hmm. And that's the optimism. That's the Stockdale paradox for us is really the epitome of optimism. So you've described these entrepreneurs as curious and optimistic, two of the great leadership qualities. And it, it's, uh, and again, I don't know, when I think back to uh, 2020, when we're all kind of going, what is this thing? You know, how long is it going to last? Uh, there was a whole lot of uh, information being thrown down our throat. Some of it good, some of it bad. And and at that, and and I guess that would be the pinnacle of uncertain times. And then I see these guys, like I knew some car dealerships canceled their orders, and other car dealerships doubled down. And and I, I was blown away. Like the same. We're talking. Just, you know, not much differentiators between the brands, but just one person said, no, I like this. And another one went, I hate this. I don't know. I'm going to go home. I'm going to lock the doors. And I'm going to sit in my bathtub and shiver. Like, honestly, that was the two, the two types of leaders that I saw. But Why I want you to go. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, just your line about um, reframing it. Like, geez, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I, yeah. For some reason, I have a short attention span. I was, 
And I always sometimes put these these thoughts or these um, ideas into a, a movie screenplay. And one of them is I could just see an action hero who has, you know, like a Ryan Reynolds type of person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who just keeps saying that. Like just he's ultimately effective, but he just keeps saying, I, geez, I didn't think it'd go that way. You know, I could just see that. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that is absolutely a Ryan Reynolds line. Great Canadian reference there. Well done. Well done, Rick. But you could see him in Deadpool. Hmm, that's not what I expected. <laughs> You know, as the world's crashing down around oh. him, and then he goes and saves the world. Yeah, Deadpool two. Deadpool two is is probably one of my favorite sequels of all time. Is is that right? Um, so, Rick, I'm, I'd love to probe with you a little bit. Like you, you work with a lot of individuals and a lot of companies. We seem to be emerging from COVID. Mm-hmm. And what are you seeing, like in in terms of people and and how they're performing and how they're feeling and what it means to the businesses that they work in. What are you seeing out there? So I'll, I'll give you a bit of a framework first, just so that we have the, the proper parameters. So I, I have a media marketing company. And then and with that, um, I deal with, with companies that have probably five employees, been around for five years, and some level of success. So let's just, you know, I just want to make sure we're talking apples to apples yeah. here. So that's yeah. one of the things. And quite often, they're either one or two in their category or their industry. Um, and I have a, an ophthalmology um, who's, uh, he's one of those businesses that was, you know, um, probably one of the smarter people I've ever met in my life. Um, top of his class, uh, also a, a very robust uh, triathlete, so very competitive person. And And one time, it was actually during covid that he was ordering a new uh, laser for eye surgery. And I said, well, what's wrong with the old one? And he says, nothing. And I said, well, why are you ordering a new technology piece when the other one was working just fine? And he says, because I knew there was a better one out there. It was in Germany. <laughs> like, and I said, well, what, is, what does that even cost? He says, it doesn't matter. That is what I want singular excellence in everything I do. And if, and, and if the tools are not at the best or the highest caliber, I'm just not interested. I want to keep it at that level. And, and it's people like that that just inspire me day to day because they, they are truly, when you're thinking about your employees and you framed it perfectly, it, it's it, when people are working for you, they want, you want their best out of them because that means they're developing, they're growing and and I think people want to work at a place where they're growing rather than just where they're working. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a what a cool thing. Like you think about there's top leader in the category. What's that person looking for to be the best mm-hmm. and to bring the best and to think about the impact on the, the team? We have a leader who won't settle for anything but the best. Like that sends such a powerful message. And gosh, when when we have people who are inspired to bring the best versions of themselves, we do. I actually just got back from doing a course uh, back east, and we talked a lot the pursuit of happiness versus fulfillment. If you compare, juxtapose happiness and uh, fulfillment, and happiness is that fleeting moment. Hey, oh, that felt good. Uh, versus fulfillment is what you look back on with richness and and uh, 
and full. You know, the, the full part is the operative uh, part there. And we, we've really embraced the definitions that emerged from that. And people are most fulfilled when they look back on their lives, their work lives. They were most fulfilled when there were some conditions being met. Number one, that they were working hard. Mm-hmm. If you're not working hard, it's unlikely you're going to be fulfilled. Ironically, they're working hard at something they're good at. So find a zone that works for you, that that you know you're good at it, because otherwise you'll be frustrated your whole life. You're working hard at something you're good at with people you trust who trust you. That's a critical element. So, you know, if, if you and I are working in an office together, having knowing that I belong, that sense of belonging, I trust you, you trust me, is absolutely, absolutely massive. This, the third, the, the fourth and fifth, at something noble. So there has to be something bigger than me involved in it. Uh, brilliant, brilliant book out right now, Deep Purpose by Harvard professor Ranjay Galati. Absolutely brilliant. And he defines it that way is, is nobility or purpose is about something bigger than the self. He has better words to describe it because he's a Harvard professor, but it's bigger than the self. Um, and then the final thing is when I'm being stretched outside of my comfort zone, that's the growth. I'm growing. I'm always growing to a better version of myself. So we guide, I mean, that that's sort of, that guides how we run business and it guides how we want and hope the people we work with will run their business because that makes it noble what you do as a leader. My job is to help you be fulfilled. And in order to do that, you got to be working hard. You got to be good at it. You got to create an environment of trust. It has to have some nobility attached to it. And we're going to stretch you. It's, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? Well, it is. And, and I imagine as a consultant, you know, a lot of times you'll give them framework and structure on, on how they can improve themselves. But I, I imagine you have to vet your clients of coachability and trainability and, and that open-mindedness to make sure that it's actually going to resonate with them and that they're actually going to action. These are actionable items for them. Is, is that a part of your Ignite training of, of doing the initial, okay, we're going to give you some, some good stuff, but I, you know... Are you going to be able to do this because you're dealing with CEOs and owners and people with egos the size of the room? If you'd seen my body language while you were talking, Rick, you would have seen me be very defeated. Um, Very, very defeated. Um, You know, I can't even laugh at that one. It, it, It just makes me sad because it is hard. It really is hard. It's hard for people to change, really, really hard for people to change. And especially those type A personalities, it's even harder for them, especially if their significance is called into question. Mm. And the science behind it is very simplistic. If you think of a two by two grid, you can be bad at something, be good at something, you can be bad at something. That's the y-axis. The X-axis, it's, uh, well, it's a two-by-two two grid. It's not axes. The, 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 the other side is it can be the right thing. It, it can be the wrong thing. And we've become pretty good at the wrong things. Turbulent times mean the world around us has changed, and we're good at doing things the old way. If we haven't shifted, we're good at the wrong things, at the old things. 
And if you've got any type A blood in you, it's hard to change because you're by definition, you're not going to be good at it at first. So you have to become bad at the right things before you can get good at them. And what we see more often than not is these leaders who have risen to these levels, they just can't accept not being good at it. And so they start and it sounds right and and the academics of it are clear and they try it and they get there and they find that they're just not good at the new thing. And so they go back. So it's interesting. Again, I, I speak to your Kelowna, about your Kelowna resident, uh, Jordan Tutu, and his story is well chronicled. It is battles with uh, with alcohol and, and, and his successful battle with alcohol. And I was sharing with him this business construct of the old things and the new things and being good at it and being bad at it. He calls me Wadi. He says, Wadi, that's exactly it. He says, that was my battle with alcohol. He says, the decision to quit drinking was easy. Like there was enough reasons, not the least of which I was going to lose my job. The reasons for stopping were easy and to stop initially was easy. But learning to live a life in sobriety was vastly different. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't good at it. I didn't know how to do it. And that's where it would have been so easy to go back. And he speaks about the fortitude to stick with it so that you can become good at the new way of doing business. So, I mean, this applies in all areas of our lives. Jordan gives the example uh, linked to uh, substance abuse or or addiction. But in our business world, how we treat people, how we manage, how we lead, we become good at the wrong things. And it ain't easy to stick with it and get good at the right things. It's, it is a tough thing, and, and again, it, going back to uh, one of the tenets of the book, which is that humility piece, and and really being being able to say, I, I wonder, I wonder if there is a, a better way, because again, we're looking at a person who has risen through the ranks and achieved some level level of success. They've led people. By the time. Um, they've gotten to that point, there's a lot of things that they've, again, we talked about that resume or that legacy of success or that body work has some success in it. So that just adds another buffer to being untrainable or open (laughs) because. And let's add to that, the bigger the company or the bigger the role, Mm -hmm. the more people you have around you telling you that you're right, telling you that you're smart, Mm -hmm. laughing at your dumb jokes, like, I mean, I, I love telling jokes and, I'm, and my jokes are dad jokes and they're not funny. And the only people on the planet that are going to tell me that they're dumb jokes is my children and my wife. Yes. But in my workplace, people will laugh because they don't want to make me feel bad and because I'm the boss. <laughs> so we have this buffer that yeah. you talk about. Mm-hmm. And if we're not exceedingly self-aware, we start to believe our own press releases. We've risen to this level. We've got people telling us we're right. And there will always be someone who will agree with you if you're signing their paycheck. It's very true. And that's why I think a lot of musical artists come out with a great album. And then the second and third ones suck. And it's because I think they have an entourage that says, no, listen, dude, awesome. Like you killed it. And and everybody else in the room is going, this is awful. Like this is garbage. But I think... That's why those true artists like the 
the big icons of our time, they're musical geniuses. That doesn't doesn't hurt. But I think a lot of times these musical artists get into any kind of success, get some play, and all of a sudden they can do no wrong and they don't have anybody grounding them like your right. wife and kids do. <laughs> You know what? And, and they're merciless. But, you know, I love you're spot on. And I'd not thought of it in the terms of, of, of the uh, the performers and the artists. But you're right. And how could that album have been so great and creative and new and fresh? And they come out with such crap after. And you, it's got to be an element of it where people are saying, oh, you're the best. Just do what you do. You just keep doing every every note they sing. They say is the best note that you've ever heard absolutely that is what happens and it's there's uh, yeah. you know what it, it, it actually goes back there it's uh alexandra sorry alexandra the great and uh marcus aurelius two famous historical figures who were world conquerors and and led great empires and in both cases they had a one trusted advisor whose sole reason for being there was to remind them of humility. In the case of Marcus Aurelius, you're just a man. You're just a man. And they had they, they had these incredible empires and that was um, a, a center point of their success in the, in the history writing. And you've just described it in the musicians that fall into that trap. Yeah. No, I've, I've because uh, every now and then I'll have an artist that I, I follow and I'm, I'm like, man, they've, they've got some great music. And all of a sudden the next album, I'm like, Oh no, Oh no. They fell into that. <laughs> anyway, we've, uh, I, this has been such a joy and, and thanks so much, Mike, for sharing the time. Uh, rise up is the book. It's called leadership habits for turbulent times. Where, where can they get this, uh, this wonderful masterpiece here, mister? Well, uh, thanks for asking. It's available at your local, if you're in Kelowna, it's available at the Kelowna Chapters Indigo. Um, It's available through Amazon and it's available online through Amazon. It's also available through our website, ignitemanagement.ca, if anyone wants to order a signed or personalized copy. Wonderful stuff. Well, I got to tell you, we'll... uh, We'll chat again because uh, the the time just flew by, and I appreciate it so much, Mike. Thanks so much, Rick. Real pleasure. Take care.